0: turn with me in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to start a series this morning called Understanding the Age to Come. Understanding the Age to Come. I feel that the scriptures talk about the age to come it's not, I, couldn't, I could even say it's stronger than that because it's not even an opinion. There's probably a hundred chapters that reference or talk in detail, with detailed description about the age to come. It's one of the most developed uh, topics in the whole scripture and perhaps one of the least uh, preached about and developed topics in the church, the age to come. Most of our comprehension of, say, heaven uh, or what's coming after death is simply we have a picture of heaven. And I I tend to joke, I like to to say, you know, most believers think that after we die or that when, I I say this way, that when Jesus comes back, that we are going to all turn into fat babies floating on clouds, wearing togas, and playing some sort of a harp. That's kind of the cartoon Picture that we have of what it looks of, of you know what we think it looks like when Jesus comes back, but the scriptures are clear and and really detailed. there is such detail in the scripture about what is going to happen after the Lord returns and what the next age looks like, and so I want to uh, take several weeks and and just unpack a bit of it from the Word uh, to give us understanding about the age to come. There are uh, really important reasons why we need understanding of the age to come. Number one is perspective. If you don't have a picture of the age to come, you will lack the proper perspective of your Christian life. I was watching a documentary recently, and it was, they were interviewing young people, who believe that the Lord might return in their lifetime, but they were, they were coming the young people were coming at it from this standpoint. they were saying, "I just want to be able to grow up and, and get married and have all these experiences uh, before the Lord returns. It just seems unfair that my parents got to grow up, and, and you know if Jesus comes back when i 'm young, then i won 't get to grow up and the the problem with that, is if you when you think from a totally this age, if you if you if your whole perspective is this age, then well, that would make total sense because you know that person thinks probably when Jesus comes back, they're gonna turn into a fat baby floating on a cloud playing a toga. That doesn't seem too fun for them, so they want to get all they can get in this life. But the point is, that idea I want to live as much of this life before Jesus comes back as I can, because sort of the idea is that when he comes back, I won't be able to really live. It's clear that that lacks massive perspective on what this whole thing is even about. And if you don't have the perspective of ages to come, then you've only, if your whole perspective is this age, and you don't see that there's actually plural ages to come, then you are very limited in your vision, and that's the second thing. So when you understand the age to come, you get perspective, you get the broad picture, and you get vision to live your life in a manner that's different than everyone else who lives in this age. Most people live this age for this age. They can't see past this age. They mostly live trying to get everything they can, whether it's a, uh, to f- the fulfillment of a desire or riches or power. They try to get it all in this age. Their vision is solely for seeing themselves be successful in this age. And I tell you, your ultimate success will not be uh, fulfilled or found out in this age. Your ultimate success lies in subsequent ages. And human greatness is not measured by the success scale of this age. I promise you. So when you lack understanding of the age to come, you lack perspective of the big picture, and you lack vision of how to live in this age. And uh, frightfully, most Christians... Live only for this age. Most people in general just live for their desires. Most people can't see past what they want today. And we have a whole debt structure in our nation that proves it. Very rarely do you find somebody who, when they see uh, an item they want to purchase, that they will save up for that item. We've got a, an immediate gratification society that says, I'll give you credit, you can have the item now, and you just spend the rest of your life pl- paying for your immediate gratification. Well, here's what ends up happening, beloved. If you don't have perspective, you'll spend the rest of your eternity paying for your immediate gratification, in other words, your vision, and only, getting what, uh, only seeing what you can get in this age rather than the broader ages to come. Immediate gratification is the banner that most people fly because they don't have perspective on the ages to come. So I want to broaden your understanding based on the Scripture and what the Scripture says is going going to happen. There is a whole agenda. There's a whole list of menu items that are going to take place that you're going to be a part of that go way beyond your life and death on this earth in this age, and that go way beyond even the, the culmination of this age and the return of the Lord Jesus. And we've got to get our mind around it so we live our life now in a way that makes sense for the next age. Now look at Ephesians 2. I love this chapter. Paul, in his, I mean, in his richest language, describes the kindness and the love of God toward us in salvation. Look at it in verse 4. God, who is rich in mercy, God, who is rich, I mean, every phrase. (laughs) You could, I mean, it's just, I'm going to have to get through this, Lord, don't help me. I mean, do help me. Saying, don't me preach, and Lord, you help me because every phrase is so full. God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I mean, every phrase, beloved oh man, and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So God did this ridiculous thing because of his rich mercy and his great love Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Jesus, and he seats us positionally with Jesus in heavenly places. Do you understand that's your position in Christ right now because of his grace, because of the sacrifice of his son? You and I, I mean, it's a stunning thought, but we have got a position better than every king of the earth. And why did you do such a thing? I mean, I I don't know how often you ask God the why questions, but I just go, why? Why would you do such a thing, Lord? I've said it often in prayer and in public. I go, Lord, I could live to be a thousand. And I don't suppose I'd ever fully understand why you wanted me. Why you saved one like me? From my vantage point, him trading Jesus for me seems like a really bad deal. From his vantage point, it's the exact desire of his heart. Why would you do that? Verse seven. That in the ages. Underline that word ages in your Bible. He did it so that in the ages to come, Ages, plural, multiple elongated seasons of time. Eons is the Greek word. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you understand we're just scratching the surface in this age? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then, talking about the age to come, face to face. Paul described that everything that we see in this age is only a shadow of the true glory and beauty that we're going to see in the next age. Our best day, our best sunset our best and most beautiful light show. Our best, most beautiful experience, most incredible, pleasurable moment in this age. I tell you, it's but a shadow compared to what's coming in the ages to come. He saved you in kindness and in mercy because of his great love why? Because he has a plan, an agenda to show you just how rich in mercy and just how kind he really is. And beloved, we don't even get to really unpack it until the next age. We're just getting started. We're just scratching the surface. We're just—I mean—just starting to get out of the starting blocks in this age. What is 70 or 80 years compared to forever? Think about it for a minute. The God who is infinite is going to infinitely show you his infinite mercy and his infinite love. You get to scratch it right now through a glass darkly. You're, you're, You're under time and behind flesh. In the next age, time, you're going to have a really interesting vantage point on time. And your flesh, your mortal, is going to put on immoto- immortality. Have you thought about that for a minute? Your mortal is going to put on immortality. Ha! Ha! <laughs> That's awesome. Well, how does that work? Every fiber of your being, every pore of your body, you're still going to have a body. That body is just going to be glorified. Every fiber of your being will be fully infused with the glory of God. Your pores will leak glory. I'm talking about your skin, your eyes, your tongue, your nose, your brain. When your body gets glorified, everything, it's going to come alive. See, right now, because of sin, you have the sentence of death working in your body. Every person on the planet is dying now. Well, there's a time coming when that mortal, that death sentence that's in your flesh, it's going to put on immortality and you will not be dying anymore. You will only be living. And you don't turn into a robot when that happens, you're still you. You still have your soul, your mind, your will, your emotions. You still have your sense of humor. You're still you, you're just you glorified. And then it gets fun. They tell us, scientists tell us that you can only use about 10%. Right now, the most brilliant among us uses about 10% of their brains. What happens to you when glory hits you and the 90% opens up? What I think God does is he's reserved that 90% because our mortal is going to put on immortality and we're going to see him and when we see him we're going to become like him. Our brain is going to open up and we're going to be able to perceive colors that you can't name right now. We're going to smell smells that you don't have words for or understanding for because you're only using 10% of the computer that God's given you. That computer's going to be hit with glory. It's going to be glorified. The whole thing's going to open up and you are going to perceive at another level. You're going to see at another level. You're going to smell at another level. You're going to understand at another level. I'm telling you, beloved, we haven't even gotten started yet. In the when? Ages to come. He's going to show you just how rich his mercy is. He's going to show you just how deep his love is. He's going to equip you with a glorified body so that you'll be able to take it all in. See, (laughs) the one that thinks, well, I want to live all I can in this age because, man, it's just going to be boring then, you don't have a clue because we haven't even begun to live yet. All I've ever known my whole life is with every breathing breath I breathe, every breath I breathe, I'm one step closer to death in this body. All I've ever known is degradation in this body. All I've ever known is that sin has corrupted my body into a place that my body is going to die. But this body, in in a a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, it's going to get infused with glory. And then from there on out, it's just going to be life. I haven't begun to live yet. You haven't begun to live yet. Ephesians 2, in the middle of the great salvation chapter, Paul expounding on God's kindness and His riches and His grace and His mercy makes it clear to us that our salvation in this age is, is I mean, it's just it's just a preparation for the depth of mercy and riches of grace that we're going to experience in these subsequent ages. It's going to get a lot better. It's going to get a lot better. (laughs) Hebrews 6, 5, you don't have to turn there, I'll just explain it to you. The writer of Hebrews, he's describing those that have actually encountered God in this life. And in verse 5, he says, they've tasted of the good word of God And the powers of the age to come. And what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell us is this. When we experience power in this age when we experience the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, when we experience the healing of a body, when we experience a a prophetic word or some sort of encounter with power or the presence of God, everything that we experience that has power attached to it in this age is power that's borrowed from the next age. All of the power that we manifest in this age, in this life, they're powers from the age to come. What we experience in part now, we will experience in full then. We have ages to come by which we'll experience the riches of his mercy. And we are touching the powers of the age to come every time we touch power now. That testimony I gave about the woman who who got healed last night, that was just a touch of the power of the age to come manifest in this age. So my point is this. If the fullness of his mercy and the fullness of his riches and the fullness of his love is something we're going to experience in the next age, and if the power that we experience now, we know when you're feeling the presence of God, you're going, oh, this feels so good. That power that you're feeling, it's, if that is a power that's actually from the age to come, It makes sense to us, it would make sense that we would get the understanding of what that age is even about, so that when we're operating in this age, we're operating in the powers of that age, we comprehend, hey, this isn't it. This isn't the end. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, he goes, those who hope in Christ only in this life, they're of the most pitiable. They're the most to be pitied. Because their perspective is so small, they have no understanding of the grand scheme and they have no vision to live beyond this age. Beloved, I tell you, everything you do in this age has massive continuity to how you will live in the next age. We have got to comprehend the kingdom that is come and is coming. George Ladd, a famous Famous theologian and scholar, he coined the idea, the already but not yet kingdom. The kingdom is already here, but not yet here. It's come in part, but it's going to come in fullness. It's the already but not yet kingdom. And the kingdom is just that. It is a kingdom. The kingdom isn't a feeling. The kingdom isn't a mentality. The kingdom isn't something... Whatever, you know, just ethereal thought out there, the kingdom is a kingdom. Another word for it would be empire. It's an empire. You and I are part of the empire of Jehovah God. Oh, we don't get this. We are part of the empire of Jehovah God. He has an appointed king that he has chosen from eternity past. That man's name is Yeshua, Jesus. He's a Jewish man. Jehovah chose a Jewish man, the only begotten of the Father, to be his chosen king to rule the empire, the kingdom of God on the earth. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. He's the king of the global empire. He's a benevolent potentate. I mean so nice and so in charge. So kind and so in authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus as the benevolent potentate of the kingdom of God. Two other verses I want to draw our attention to. So Hebrews, I mean, Hebrews 6, 5, Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, and then these other two. Matthew 6, verse 10, just flip over there. I want to take a few weeks, I want to lay this stuff out because we need comprehension. We need perspective. You know, if people are getting filled with the Spirit And getting touched by God is weird. Or if, like, you know, we've got people laughing right now. And that's good. I like that. I'm for it. Don't stop. But you go, well, man, they're just a little bit, you know, whatever. They're kind of, no, it's a power of the age to come. Because in the age to come, he says, I'm going to put everlasting joy on their heads. I don't know what everlasting joy on my head looks like. But I guarantee you, it's going to be funner than just about anything we do in this age everlasting joy on their heads. Like, put it on me, Lord, whatever, you know. So you see somebody that gets touched with the Holy Spirit, they begin to the laugh and the joy begins to bubble out. Well, what is that? It's a power of the age to come. I love how it says in Hebrews 6, 5, the powers, the many faceted striations of the power of God manifest and release in many different measures. I love it. God can just do about anything because there is so much we've never seen. And he manifests power in this age. It's all powers of an age we've not even touched yet. Just barely, barely scratched the surface on it. Oh, and he'll manifest it all. What's he doing? He's wetting our appetite for another day, another time. He's giving us understanding of the kingdom that we're actually a part of. Look at Matthew 6, verse 10, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, right in the middle of Jesus' treatise on the kingdom of God. Somebody's worried about people laughing while I'm preaching. Well, it's better than people groaning and frowning and leaving. I like it. More Lord. Let me tell you, when we preach on the kingdom, it should be accompanied with following signs. For the kingdom of God does not exist in eating and drinking. But Romans 14, 17 says it's righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. That's the kingdom. Ha! This is a little karate chop. Ha! All right. I don't know. Okay. Matthew 6. Right in the middle of the Lord's prayer. Ha! Jesus teaches us to pray this way, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Think about that phrase for a minute. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? Where? On earth as it is done where? In heaven. Your kingdom come here and your will be established here. He's not just saying, let the authority of God be manifest in the earthly realm and let God stay there. He's saying, no, let the whole of the kingdom, let the whole governmental system, the whole seat of authority of the kingdom, let the kingdom come on the earth. Let the earth receive the king and the kingdom of the king and the will of the king. Let the reign of the king and his authority and uh, leadership structure, let the kingdom and his will be established on earth. Jesus goes, I want to teach you how to pray. Pray for this. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. You could say it this way. Your empire be established. Your governmental seat, be established. Your governmental system, be established. And all your desires, all your wills, all your strategies, all that you want, let it come. This is not some little weak, wimpy, just, you know, we learned it to to monotone. You know, did you ever go there? You know, you just... Kind of pray that prayer every single week, you know. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, like you know, kingdom of, come. I mean, I'm, I'm thankful that we pray that in so many places every single week. Thank God for that. But this is a devastating prayer. It's a devastating prayer. Because if you're praying for his kingdom to come, his kingdom is pervasive, his kingdom, it, it, it leavens the whole lump. That's what he said. He goes, it's like a little bit of leaven. Eleven's the whole thing. He goes, if my kingdom comes, it takes everything over. So when you're praying your kingdom come, you're praying a few things. Number one, you're praying my kingdom go. (laughs) It's a devastating prayer. You want to jack yourself up, pray your kingdom come. Because that means you're setting aside all your rulership, all your controls, all your leadership of your life, all your ideas, all your entitlements. (laughs) <laughs> your kingdom come. Yes, pray that. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. You're setting aside your will, your way, your opinion, your plan, and you're saying, I want yours to be done, Father. This is a devastating prayer. When you pray your kingdom come, it means my kingdom has to go. It also means this, when we pray your kingdom come, it means every other earthly kingdom has to go. No, this is a dominating prayer. You know, the, the talking heads in the, in the political realms, and they, they don't like it, but they're like, you want theocracy, absolutely, I want God to rule, I want his chosen king. Fact, Psalm 2 is really clear. None of the kings of the earth are going to want theocracy. The only people that are going to want it are the the servants, the subjects of the kingdom of God. But God's already voted. He's already set his king. He's already set it. He set his king on his holy hill in Zion. That's a day coming when Jesus will reign the nations. When we pray your kingdom come, it means every other earthly kingdom go. Do you understand what Jesus was doing when he taught us this prayer? This wasn't a little cliche, little something, something you just put a, got to put right there in the middle of the Lord's prayer. This was the point. This is the end that God is unto, the establishment of his kingdom. Your kingdom come means every earthly kingdom go. It means my kingdom go. You know what else it means? It means the kingdom of darkness will go. If his kingdom comes, the kingdom of darkness goes. This is a devastating prayer. It's a powerful prayer. I tell you, if you don't know what to pray, pray in tongues and say, your kingdom come, your will be done. That'll work. Let your government, let your rule, let it be established in this area in my life right now. Powerful prayer. Jesus was tricking us. He thought, I mean, he knew that we thought he was just giving us a little pattern for prayer. He goes, no, this is actually the main point. God's gonna take everything over. Ask for it. I mean, think about the words. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it's done in heaven. Do you think in heaven the father goes, hey, angels, let's do this. They go, huh, why you wanna do that? We have a better idea. Do you, I mean, do you think any of that happens in heaven? No. It's done exactly the way he wants. He goes, ask for that to happen in the earth. Your empire, come. Now look, look at Matthew 6, verse 33. Another one of those verses that we relegated to cliche. Cliche but I love to say it, if something is cliche to us in the scripture, I promise you it means we've got no understanding of it. Matthew 6, Ha! <laughs> Seek ye first. Seek first, what? The kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Everything you need shall be added to you. All these things shall be added to you. So in the middle of the Lord's prayer, the principal thing he tells us to pray for is for the kingdom to come. And then right there in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, just a few verses later, the principal thing he tells us to seek is firstly the kingdom of God. What are we seeking about the kingdom of God? Like what does that even mean? Somebody says, you know, seek first the kingdom. What kind of images does that evoke in your mind? Like what are you imagining that to be? And I imagine that if I gave out a questionnaire and I said, what does seek first the kingdom mean, I would have as many different answers as I have people in the room. (laughs) But seeking first the kingdom has everything to do with the establishment of the kingdom on the earth, just like he had just asked us to pray. Seek first the establishment of the kingdom. Seek first to be a citizen of the kingdom. And here's why. Because in the verses prior to that, he says, Don't worry about what you'll eat or what you'll wear. Don't worry about all that. Why? Because your father has need of all he has knowledge of all what you need, and he'll provide for you. If you'll seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, everything you need will be supplied for you. He goes, You don't understand the dramatic implications of being a citizen of the kingdom of God. He provides everything you need. Seek first the kingdom. Seek first its establishment. Seek first your entrance into it, and God will take care of the rest. It's the principal prayer point in the Lord's prayer. It's the principal pursuit that he says out of the Sermon on the Mount. And yet we have very little understanding of what this kingdom has to do with. Well, the reason why I coupled it with the age to come scriptures is because the kingdom has everything to do with what's going to happen in the age to come. As I said, it's the already but not yet kingdom. The already but not yet kingdom. All right, in our, in our few moments that we have left, I want to give us a little history of the kingdom. just want to break it down for us so you understand the biblical... Uh, background of the establishment of God's kingdom. Beloved, this is so important to our Christianity. Without these thoughts in place, you almost wonder what did you sign up for when you signed up for Christianity? Kingdom. So God says to Adam in Genesis 1, have dominion over the earth. Remember the garden? God creates Adam, puts him in the garden, has Adam name all the animals, and then he tells Adam, take dominion, and that word is exercise authority over the entire earth. Adam, you man, you first man, Adam, exercise authority over the entire earth. And in doing so, you could say it this way, that God makes Adam the first leader of God's kingdom over the earth. Can you see it that way? God gives Adam authority, puts him in the garden, and says, have dominion over the planet. And we know what happened. Adam sins He and Eve, they they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam, he gives over the dominion that God gave to him. He gives that authority, he loses it over to the enemy. And sin and death enter humanity. All right, now fast forward a couple thousand years, and you get a guy named Abram. Abram was from Ur, the Chaldeans. Ur of the Chaldeans. He was, a, he was an Iraqi. He lived in Iraq. And God says to Abram, he says, get up from among you and your people and come to a land that I will show you. And he goes, I will be your rear guard and I will be your shield and I will be your reward, Abram. And he plucks Abram up and he makes a covenant with Abram and he says, I am gonna make you a great nation He goes, your descendants will be as many as the stars of the sky. And he changes his name, Abram, to Abraham. He gives him a new name, and he gives him an inheritance. And what's God doing with Abram? Why is he doing this? Why is he plucking this man out of Ur the Chaldeans? Why is he choosing this man and saying, I'm going to make a great nation out of you? The reason why is this. God is creating a lineage. By which he will then pull out his chosen human king. Adam was the first leader over the, the kingdom of God on the earth. Adam forfeits that dominion to the enemy. And then God, 2,000 years later, picks this man named Abram. It says, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And from that nation, I'm going to establish my throne and my lineage. God picks Abram I mean, he could have picked anyone. He just picks this man, Father Abraham, the father of faith. He picks him in order to establish a nation to bring Messiah from. Fast forward a thousand years later, and you get a little shepherd boy worshiping God in the back hills of Bethlehem. And this little man, David, this young man, he's a man after God's own heart. Saul was the king that the people had chosen, but David was the king that God had chosen. A man after God's own heart. David, forgotten by his father and despised by his brothers, David is the one that God exalts to the throne in the nation of Israel. And here's what happens. David takes the throne, David takes Jerusalem, David sets up the tabernacle of David, which is a 33 and a half year worship reality that happens throughout his reign, and when David sets up the tabernacle of David, David looks out of his palace, and he sees God in a tent, sees the Ark of the Covenant in that tent, and he says this, he says, how could it be that I'm in a a palace of cedar, and God is in a tent? He goes, I'm going to make the Lord a palace. And he, David asked the prophet Nathan, he says, Nathan, I'm making God a palace. Nathan goes, hey, look, you're on a roll. <laughs> you've got the ark back, you've got the night and day worship going, things are going good, you're on a roll, go for it. And the Lord appears to Nathan, and he tells Nathan, tell David this, he cannot build a palace for me. I've never asked him to build a palace. In fact, he's a man of war and a man of blood. He won't build a palace for me, but tell David this, and he prophesies one of the most critical prophecies in all of scripture. He prophesies it to David. I want you to turn over there and look at it with me. First Chronicles chapter 17. At least we're unusual. I don't mind people that come to spectate. I don't. I'd be doing the same thing. I wouldn't want to be going to the place where you just expect everything to happen in such and such a way. First Chronicles 17, here's the prophecy. This is a critical prophecy. This prophecy th- shows up multiple times throughout the scripture. If you don't understand this prophecy, much of your understanding of the kingdom, it's confused. You, you don't have light on, on much of the understanding of the kingdom. So here's what he says to him in verse 10. Halfway through, he says, Furthermore, I tell you, that the Lord will build you a house, David, and it shall be when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seat after you, who will be of your sons, and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 12, he shall build me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. Forever. Verse 13, I will be his father and he shall be my son and I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him who was before you and I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever and his throne shall be established forever. Three different times he says forever. You and I... We've experienced the gift of prophecy. We've had good prophetic words. You know, maybe you've been there in a service and somebody even called somebody out by name. Maybe gave them a good word of prophecy. Or maybe you've had somebody just tell you something that was on your heart. And you're like, man, the Lord is prophesying to me. This is wonderful. God's speaking to me. But I promise you, you've never had a prophecy like this one. Because what Nathan is saying to David is this. David... I know you want to build God a temple. That's wonderful. You're not going to be able to do that. But let me tell you what the Lord is going to do through you. There's going to be a throne established forever. And from your line, will be the man who will sit on that throne forever. In fact, that man will be the son of God. <laughs> you and I have never gotten a prophecy like that. We've never gotten a prophecy where it said, God will bring his son through your line. And that's the prophecy that Nathan gave to David. He goes, there will be a throne established forever, and the man that will sit on that throne will be my son, and he will sit on that throne forever. Now this is powerful, here's why. David becomes the lineage that then traces where Messiah will come from. Abraham becomes the nation, David becomes the lineage of this chosen leader, this chosen king that God is gonna set on his throne. Now look at what David says about his throne. It's gonna come up on the screens. David understood that the throne that he was sitting on wasn't just any average human throne. David understood that the throne that he was sitting on was the throne of the kingdom of God on the earth. Biblically, look at what it says. 1 Chronicles 28, verse 5. David's saying, and of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he's chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. Do you see that? The throne of the kingdom of the Lord. Capital L-O-R-D equals Jehovah. What's David talking about? David's saying the throne that's over Israel is the throne of the kingdom of God on the earth. You've got to comprehend this. That's what the prophet Nathan was prophesying to David. And that's what David fully understood. He even says it again in 1 Chronicles 29, 23. It's actually said, the, the writer of Chronicles says it this way. Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king instead of David his father. The throne of the Lord. Do you comprehend This nation that God chose, that He pulled this man Abram out of Iraq and He made this nation from that man. Do you comprehend that the throne that God established in that nation has always been the place where the kingdom of the Lord, that throne, would rule and reign the kingdom of the Lord on the earth? It's always been that. It's always been in the scripture. It's weird how we've gotten these strange ideas of kingdom and this being ethereal thoughts and not this this thing that God has established as a throne that would be upon the planet. I know how we got there. I'm not going to go into that. But the point is, scripturally, we see it very, very clearly. I will go into it. The way that we got there is this. When the nation of Israel ceased to exist, the, the theologians started applying all the prophecies that were to Israel to the church. They started replacing Israel with the church. And they started saying, well, that, that whole issue about Israel, the chosen people of God, well, that's for the church. So the throne is now a throne that's over the church and not over a nation. So it's a throne over the church, and that throne is in heaven. It's not on the earth anymore. So they replaced all the promises to the people in the land They've replaced it with the church. But let me tell you something. God never intended those prophecies and those promises to be replaced. That's called replacement theology. When God gives a word, he means that word. He's going to bring it to pass. See, Israel ceased to be a nation for over 1,000 years, over 1,500 years. They ceased to be a nation. The theologians couldn't see the end of it. And then supernaturally, I don't know how God does these things. He does it. In 1948, bam, Israel's on the map again. What's God doing? He's setting up the nation in the geographic location. He's setting up the place where what? Where Jesus will come back and take the throne that he was promised. It's stunning. Never has there been a nation in the course of human history that's gone 1,500 plus years and then reemerged with the same language, the same culture, the same religion. Never has that happened. You and I are watching it. Yeah, those biblical promises about the nation of Israel, they're real. It's happening in front of us. So here's what happens. Shortly after Solomon, the nation is split. The nation of Israel is split. They go into like a civil war. And in 400 years, they're completely decimated, first by the Assyrians, then by the Babylonians. And by 600 B.C., we were at 1,000 B.C. with David. Now by 600 B.C., the nation's gone. The temple's destroyed. The throne is gone. And all the Jews are in Babylon. It looks like it's over. You understand? It looks completely over. The prophecy that Nathan gave to David looks impossible to be fulfilled because Israel does not exist. And God... Again, puts his hand on a 16-year-old, Daniel, in captivity in Babylon. And Daniel lives a life of fasting and prayer. And then as an old man, Daniel begins to have visions and dreams and angelic encounters. Daniel prophesies two kings in and out of office. And then Daniel in Daniel 7 has an encounter with God where he sees one like a son of man. And he comes on a throne. And this son of man begins to rule and reign. And here's the verse in in, in, in Daniel 7 verse 13. It's going to come up. It says this. I was watching in the night visions. And behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient of days. And they brought him near before him. And then to him was given what? Dominion and glory and a kingdom. What? That all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. What's Daniel in essence saying? He goes, those prophecies about the kingdom and the throne and the lineage of David, he goes, it's still on. I know it's our darkest hour, but it's still on. He goes, I saw it. The one that's the chosen king. He was brought before the ancient of days and was given to him a kingdom and a throne over every nation and every people. Oh, it's powerful. Fast forward 600 years. You have this wild prophet who eats locusts and honey. He's the one prophesied by Isaiah. Make straight, prepare the way for the Lord. And what is his message? Repent, because the kingdom is at hand. And Jesus immediately comes on the scene, preaching the exact same message. Change the way you thought, is the message. Change the way you thought, because the kingdom is going to come in a way, Jewish people, that you had no idea that it was going to come. And it's going to come in this way. The the king of the kingdom is the martyr of the kingdom. The high priest of the kingdom is the sacrifice of the kingdom. And when he comes in his first coming, he's coming as a lamb. And when he comes in his second coming, he's coming as a lion. The Jews couldn't see it. All they could see was Messiah is supposed to rule and reign. Messiah is supposed to be the chosen king. The the message, the kingdom is at hand. Jesus punctuates it with power of the kingdom. Signs, wonders, and miracles like they'd never seen. So his message is authenticated by him manifesting the powers of the kingdom. The problem is the kingdom didn't come by their observance or their agreement to it. It came by God's will in God's way. Jesus, the king of the kingdom, shows up and becomes the martyr of the kingdom. The high priest is the sacrifice. Beloved, this was always about God having a chosen man that he picked to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord on the earth. And Jesus is that man And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they got so filled with envy, they couldn't have another one rule them. They wanted to be God. They had taken the place of God in front of the people. And so they crucified Jesus. And what was the inscription they put above his head? The Romans wrote, King of the Jews. And the Jews said, no, no, no. Don't write King of the Jews. Write, he said he was King of the Jews. And what did they say? We have no other king than Caesar. And God said, really? I've already set and established who will be king of my nation and my plot of ground. Last verse. Flip over to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. David prophetically speaking. Of the coming king. Psalm 2 verse 1. Why do the nations rage? And the people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Saying let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Because they say we don't want to be ruled by him. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. In verse 6, this is what the Lord's proclamation is I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. What's the Lord saying is there's one vote, and it's mine. I've already decided who's going to be the king. It doesn't matter if the kings of the nations don't agree. He goes, I have already done it. It's an already established but not yet reality. It's already established in the mind of the Lord, but the earth hasn't seen it yet. But this is coming to a planet near you very soon. I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And he he says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. This is the son answering. Today I've begotten you. And then the father answers and says, ask of me. And I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Do you see that? The promise for the ends of the earth as the possession, that's to the son You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Beloved, this thing doesn't end when Jesus comes back, it's just getting started. The global empire of the Lord in manifestation on the earth, in manifestation on the earth begins when the Lord Jesus returns. He came the first time. He dies as the martyr of the kingdom. He he gains all the authority that Adam lost. He gains it back. Remember Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he commissions the church to do what? Go and make disciples of the nations. He goes, I want you to start the process. I'm coming back and I'll finalize it. And so he imparts authority to us. To manifest the powers of the kingdom, to call people into the kingdom, here's our message. There's a king. His name is Jesus. He's so kind, he died to make a way for the doors of the kingdom to be wide open. That's our message. Repent of living in another kingdom and choose the kingdom of God. One of the uh, travesties of the church is that we have preached that you can enter the kingdom of God without repenting of your, of your uh, uh, membership in the kingdom of darkness. No, really, come on. There is no forgiveness without repentance. Those are massively important. You don't just sprinkle a little Jesus on to your kingdom of darkness and say, now you're a Christian. That's foolish. He's a king. He's got a kingdom. He's got a culture of that kingdom. He's got a way it's going to operate. He's going to run the whole planet. Beloved, we're going to see it in fullness in the next age. We get to see it in part right now. He's imparted to us the powers of the age to come. So when we manifest healing, when we manifest salvation, when we manifest deliverance, when the power of the Holy Spirit hits, those are powers of the age to come. The powers of the manifest kingdom. We are subjects of that king and of that kingdom, and we're manifesting his very powers in the earth today, calling people into the kingdom. That's our job. Occupying the planet, what? Until he comes. We've got to get our minds around this, beloved. Otherwise, you will live solely for your life, solely for this age, short-sighted in your vision, limited in your perspective, not comprehending your place in the kingdom, the values of the kingdom, the reward system of the kingdom, the agenda of the kingdom. You know what's one of the most chilling, amazing, scary, wonderful things? That right now God's raising up a global prayer movement all across the earth. And there's people all over the earth right now praying that Matthew six prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. I tell you, there's a day coming when he is coming. (laughs) He's going to establish his kingdom fully and finally. And until then, we manifest, we take ground for the kingdom by manifesting the power of the kingdom until the full manifestation of the kingdom on the earth. Are you understanding this? This is so important. I pray that over the next days and weeks, the Lord will give us understanding of the kingdom that we're a part of. I tell you, Christianity has been diminished to churchianity. Where do you go to church? Listen, it's not mostly about where you go to church. It's about what kingdom are you of. Listen, if we're in the kingdom, have it, man. We're on the same team. You can have it, have the money, have the people, have the honor. It doesn't matter. We're all on the same team. Ultimately, Jesus gets all the glory and honor anyway. He's the king. Does that make sense? Good. Good. Let's stand. I want to encourage you to go back and track these verses. Now, I want to, over the next weeks, I want to establish what the kingdom and what the next age, what it even looks like, what's it even about, what's the continuity of this age to the next. Much stays intact from this age to the next. Obviously, nations stay intact. He's going to rule all nations. There's a global takeover coming. Jesus is going to take over the globe. I didn't sign up for that when I got saved. I signed up for not going to hell. I didn't sign up for being a part of a global empire. (laughs) I, I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't know anything about that. I didn't sign up for Jesus as the King of the Kingdom of God over the entire creation. I just didn't want to go to hell. It is so much better than not going to hell. <laughs> freely accepted into the kingdom, freely loved by the king, given free access to the throne of the king. He's actually granted dominion to us and authority to us in the kingdom. We actually get to manifest the powers of the kingdom, we actually get to live as subjects of the, the kingdom. We actually get all of our needs and everything provided because in the kingdom, he takes care of us. We actually get to live forever. Part of the the benefit package of the kingdom is forever retirement. Let's get to retire forever. And retirement doesn't doesn't look like sitting out there fishing, bored out of your mind. Retirement looks like ruling and reigning the nations with Jesus in a glorified state with glory permeating every cell of your being smells and sights and sounds oh like you've never seen what kingdom are you you of? do you realize he's a king Revelation to us. A part of the kingdom, beloved. A part of the kingdom with a benevolent dictator. A benevolent potentate. Who shares authority with people like you and me. How crazy is that?